It's always interesting, isn't it, when babies um, start to eat solids. Uh, if you're a parent, you'll know exactly what I mean. Um, or if you're a grandparent, you'll know, probably you'll know what I mean. But the change from milk to solids can be really hard work, can't it? There's a lot of coughing and spluttering involved and the choking on you know, every second mouthful. Well, our youngest grandchild, who of course happens to be the cutest looking grandchild in the world, there he is, that's Zephaniah. There's a mouthful. But that's Zephaniah, and he's right at that sort of period now. Um, uh, and along with his brothers and his parents, he's in Vanuatu while his mum and dad are working with CMS there. So we only get to observe these stages of development via video calls, which is where that image is from. But the move to eating solids can be a bit stressful for everyone involved. Uh, you know, if you've been a parent, that you have to watch your child carefully when they're going through that phase. Every minute or so, there's a bit of food that gets stuck in the back of the throat and needs some vigorous pats on the back to dislodge. Or maybe, uh, Robin and I can remember with Zephy's dad, Joel, uh, sometimes we had to do the deep dive with the finger to dislodge that piece of food from the back of the mouth and get that out. But it is all worth the effort. And if Zephy is going to grow up and thrive, he's got to learn to eat solids. Because milk by itself, as wonderful as it is, is not going to help him develop properly past a certain stage. He needs the vitamins, he needs the carbs, he needs the minerals that other kind of foods bring. And milk doesn't deliver those things. He needs solid food. We're going to struggle here today. There we go. But it's the same with these Christians at Corinth, of course, that Paul's talking about. They need to get into the solid food as believers. They need to grow up. They need to become mature Christians. They need to leave their unspiritual, worldly ways of thinking behind. And the problem is they're not making that change. They're not chewing into the solids. They're not mature in their, uh, uh, gaining maturity and understanding in their thinking. They're stuck at their immaturity. They're stuck on the, basis, on the basics of Christianity, which is certainly not wrong, but they haven't gone any further than understanding how those basics work. They're still thinking in worldly ways, Paul writes. Uh, with no sign of change. And it is a serious situation because milk won't help them grow beyond a certain point. And so Paul's got to convince them to move on. And so he's pretty blunt, isn't he, in the opening verses there. Um, ah, we might, there we are. Um, uh, he's pretty blunt at what he says. You know, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it, and you're still not. So the Corinthians should be growing up. They should be munching down on some solid spiritual food and living that out. But the solid food that Paul's talking about isn't new knowledge. He's not saying they've got to move on from the message of the cross to some other kind of teaching, uh, as if the message of the cross is the milk and there's some other knowledge that is, that is meatier and more solid. 
remember what Paul's been saying all along in this, in this letter, uh, back in the previous chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 2, he said he's determined to talk about nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the message of the cross and its implications is the only message that there is. But it needs to be applied. It needs to be worked out in their lives. It needs to be worked out as they seek to live as God's people. That's the solid food that Paul's talking about, the hard work of applying the message of the cross to every part of their lives, thinking about what the cross means for the way that they treat each other, and in particular here, thinking about what it has to say about leadership. But you see, the Corinthians haven't made progress into that kind of thinking, and it's especially clear in the way they treat their leaders. They haven't applied gospel principles at all. They're still stuck in the same worldly ways of thinking about leadership as anyone else in the city that they live in. They're still jealous, they're still fighting, they're still boasting, they're still uh, vying off different leaders against each other. And so we can see what Paul says in verse 3. He says, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? See, that's the kind of behaviour that Corinthians should be leaving behind. That's the kind of way that non-believers uh, act and think and treat their leaders. But now they are followers of the risen Lord Jesus, so they should be acting differently. The jealousy, the fighting, the boasting, it's all worldly human behaviour. Behaviour that shows that they haven't thought through what the gospel says about leadership. So Paul spells it out for them. He's got to help them take their first mouthfuls of solid food and he has to explain what real gospel leadership is like and why they shouldn't be fighting or arguing about it. And so he explains this in three points. He gives them three reasons, three things they need to understand, three reasons why they need to stop the fighting, and he uses two images, two illustrations, a field and a building to flesh out what he is saying. So the first reason he gives us are, uh, is that, of course, gospel leaders are servants. They're not like a boss at work. They're not like a king or a queen. They're not there to order people around and, and make themselves powerful or significant or impressive or popular. They're not like politicians. They're servants doing what God wants them to do. And that's what Paul says, of course, in verse 5. makes it very clear. He says, what after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. And you don't boast about servants, do you? Um, uh, uh, you? You don't form fan clubs. You don't follow their TikTok or Instagram accounts. Uh, it's interesting because years ago, my dad got a, uh, a letter from the Queen when he got mentioned in the Australia Day honours list. 
And if you get a letter from the Queen about something as significant as that, of course, you don't care about the postman who delivers it, do you? Uh, he might be doing a great job. He might be a great postman, serving you, serving the Queen. But he's not the one that makes the letter exciting. You don't tell people about the postman who delivers it. You tell people about the Queen who sent it. She's the one that makes the letter important. And Paul says, well, he would say this if they had postmen in the first century. He said gospel leaders are just like postmen. They're doing an important job. They're serving God and the church, but you wouldn't boast about them. God is the one you boast about. And he illustrates this using his first image. Instead of postmen, he talks about gospel leaders are like farmhands. They're working away, planting and watering, but they don't make anything grow. God's the only one that makes Christians grow. And so he looks, and so he's the only one that they should boast about. You can see it there in verses six and seven. He causes the growth. He's the one they should be following. And in comparison to him, the leaders are, well, they're not really anything significant. They're just servants. And it's only God choosing to work through those leaders who causes the growth. So he's the one that we should be boasting about. So consider the implications of that for a church like this here. Um, there are, of course, a whole range of people involved in watering and planting here. Probably most of you in some way, shape or form. Um, I think there's new rosters due out soon or something like that. And what is a roster? Well, in one sense, it's a boring bit of paper or something on your iPhone or whatever you pick up. But of course, a roster is really a list of people who are involved in some way, shape or form at watering and planting. There's the paid staff team. There's growth group leaders. There's youth and children's leaders. But they're not causing the growth. And so you wouldn't want to be proud or arrogant about them. You wouldn't want to be pushing one of them up above the other and saying they're more important or they're terrific, they're great. You should really follow that person. You should be thankful for them, yes, absolutely. But God is the one doing the growing. And he's the one that you can be proud of. He's the one we should thank. But Paul's got another reason, second reason, why the Corinthians should stop fighting about who's the best. Because he says to them, gospel leaders are all on the same team. They're all working together. They're all contributing to the same cause. Um, we saw that in verse 6, that they might have different jobs, one planting, one watering, but they've got the one purpose. They're fellow workers. And so Paul spells it out in verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9, where are we? Uh, maybe that's the one. I just had the wrong title on it. But gospel leaders are team players and they're all doing an important job because without someone to plant the seed, without someone to water that seed, of course, nothing's going to grow. 
It's like lots of team sports. I know we're all obsessed about soccer at the moment. Sorry, round ball football. Whatever the current name is, you know what I mean. But think about cricket. Think about the way they work as a team sport because you can get the person who's batting to um, hit the ball towards the boundary. Two players uh, on the fielding team take off after it. One is much closer, but he's going too fast to stop it before he gets to the boundary. So he takes a dive, he grabs the ball, and he flicks it back to his mate, who's a few metres behind him. He catches it, he lobs it back to the wicketkeeper, who then takes the bails off and runs the batter out. Well, that's the theory, isn't it? But the point is, they've got different roles, but they're working together to achieve the same goal. Now, I reckon you're pretty lucky here at Emu Plains. Um, I reckon you're pretty, you're pretty fortunate because you've got leaders who work together in a team doing different tasks. There are a large number of people working in all sorts of teams in areas of ministry. You've got Roger and David, who are, of course, are heading a lot of things up because uh, uh, that's what they're paid to do. But they've got different gifts. They, have, they function differently themselves. Um, then you've got, got uh, loads of other teams of people leading in other ministries, but all working for the same purpose, to grow followers of Jesus. And our church needs leaders, paid and voluntary, with a wide range of gifts and abilities. And it would be crazy to start fighting about whether teaching is better than pastoral care or whether strategic planning is more important than scripture teaching. Because it's not a competition. We're working together for the gospel. So Paul's told the Corinthians two things about Christian leadership and about gospel leaders. He said they're servants, he said they're team players, and his third point is, of course, that gospel leaders need to focus on, ah, dear idea, there we are, on Jesus and his death and his resurrection. If they focus on anything else, their work is useless. And you can see how central it was to the early church um, I've just come from doing a stint at another church, preach and in part preaching on the opening verses, or the opening chapters of Acts. And all the way through those opening chapters of Acts, there's this same message is being pummeled about Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. And gospel work that doesn't follow Jesus closely won't make it into eternity. And Paul gives the Corinthians another way to think about leaders. This time he says they're like builders. And for builders who are building the church, there's only one foundation they can build on, and that's the foundation that Paul himself laid, the foundation of Jesus. But then he tells us in verses 10 and 11 that uh, whatever is built on, on the top of that, each one should build with care. For no one can lay any other any foundation other than the one is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. We know the importance of foundations, don't we? And so gospel leaders need to stay closely focused on Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. It's the foundation of all their work. It's his life, death, and resurrection which should underlie everything that Christian leaders do. And if they're basing their work on anything else, well, they're actually not building the church at all. 
And it's not just the foundation that's important. I'm having a hard time this morning, aren't I? I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to let this go. Do you want to just go to blank? And I'm just going to avoid the distraction. Um, it's not just the foundation that's important. It's the whole building. Gospel leaders have to do all their work in the same way that the foundation is set. And they need to use the right materials. They need to teach people about the risen Lord Jesus. They need to help people trust Jesus. That was the thing that in my testimony that those youth leaders and church leaders at the church I was attending didn't do. They need to teach people about the risen Lord Jesus. They need to help people trust Jesus. If they don't, if they use the wrong building materials, their work won't survive. You know, um, it's like the effects earlier this year that, uh, uh, speaking of our family who uh, live and work in Vanuatu, um, Vanuatu had two cyclones hit them within the space of two days earlier this year. Uh, and buildings that were supposed to be well built, because Vanuatu does get its fair share of cyclones, they just fell down. Because in reality, they weren't built to stand the dual storms. Now, you could say in some cases someone skimped on the design or used cheap materials or whatever, but the bottom line is when the cyclones hit, those buildings didn't stand a chance. And it's like that with gospel leaders. If they haven't been building the church with the right material, if their people aren't trusting Jesus, then it's going to be tragic on Judgment Day because their work won't survive judgment. Verses 12 and 13 say, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work's going to be shown by, uh, for what it is and it's going to be tested in the fire of judgment. I'm not sure that wood, hay or straw really do particularly well when tested by fire. Paul doesn't explain exactly what all the different materials represent, but you can sort of work it out from what he said there. And you might remember from the last couple of weeks, he's told the Corinthians the kind of things that you can't use to build a church. One is worldly wisdom. Wisdom that doesn't acknowledge God and can't humbly trust Jesus. And the second thing Paul warns them about is manipulative speaking. Leaders use techniques to try and con people into believing. The sort of things that leaders will sometimes do to make the gospel more palatable to our culture. They're the wood, the hay and the straw. And on judgment day, one huff, one puff and they'll be gone. And if leaders try to build the church with those things, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for the people who they're leading because they won't help people face God's judgment. So gospel leaders need to stay very clearly focused on Jesus, his death and resurrection, and that's indeed what, of course, we also read in that little snippet from Acts earlier on. And it's what Paul's ministry is focused on. That's the gold, the silver and the costly stones because when people trust Jesus, they can face God's judgment with confidence. 
And as Paul says, leaders need to take this seriously because leaders who've used the right material, who've taught people about Jesus, they will get a great reward and that reward is actually seeing their life's work survive judgment and go into eternity with them. But for leaders who haven't built with the right things, it'll be tragic. They'll escape, but by the skin of their teeth. They'll see their life's work literally go up in flames, according to Paul. And yet, you know, that's what's happening right now all over Australia and the world. We've got endless examples of ministers or pastors or bishops or even archbishops trying to build the world, the church, using worldly wisdom, trying to make the gospel, watering it down to make it more palatable to the world that we live in. You've got examples of that with people like Mark Driscoll, where it led to the entire collapse of the church which he helped to, to, um, to found, the Mars Hill. And leaders like that, they need to come back to this passage. They need to need, read, reread verse 14. If what had been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer. Yes, they'll be saved, but literally by the skin of their teeth. And if gospel leaders aren't focusing on Jesus, his death and resurrection, then their work is useless. So if you are involved in any kind of leadership, this needs to make you stop and think. What kind of kids' church am I building? What kind of youth group am I building? What kind of growth group? What kind of music team? You could go on and on, naming all the different ministries that exist in this church. Is it built and focused first and foremost on Jesus and all that his death and resurrection means? Or is the focus somewhere else? Perhaps on you and your gifts and your abilities and your persuasive personality. Because it if your ministry is like that, then it's in big danger and you're endangering the people who you are seeking to lead. If you want it to have real eternal significance, then you need to get your focus back where it should be, on the meat and potatoes of Jesus and his gospel. And, you know, as for the Corinthians, Paul is saying they shouldn't boast about things like their leaders' worldly wisdom or their leaders' fancy speeches. Uh, those things have got nothing to do with the gospel. They'll only build a church that will get flattened when the first cyclone of persecution and judgment blows along. And I think that's Paul's point about idolising leaders in general. It doesn't make sense. It's immature. It shows that the gospel hasn't changed the Corinthians' hearts and their attitudes. It shows they haven't understood that gospel leaders are servants, that gospel leaders work together to build the church that will be God-honouring in what it does. And they haven't understood gospel leaders' focus on Jesus, his death and resurrection. Because if they had understood those things, they wouldn't be fighting over their leaders. 
They wouldn't be forming factions and boasting and putting each other down. Those things could destroy the Corinthian church. And that's like destroying God's temple because that's what they are, Paul tells them. God's temple, of course, not a physical temple. They're a gathering of people in whom God's spirit lives. Which is what he says to them in verse 16. And that means God cares about it. He's not going to stand back and, and, and let you destroy it. He'll protect it. And if you're immature boasting and fighting and factions and focus on the person rather than the ministry and the, and the truth of the gospel, if they're destroying the church, they need to look out because they're going to face judgment themselves as verse 17 warns them. So we need to get our thinking straight about Christian leadership. As Paul says very bluntly in verse 21, no more boasting about human leaders. It's immature, it's dangerous, and it shows you haven't understood real gospel leadership at all. And even worse, it'll lead to fights and splits that could destroy the church. How do we wrap all this up? Well, I've got three quick takeaways for you. Number one, make sure we look for the right qualities in our church leaders. Can I say in my work with the diocese, I can see that in action. Um, the hurdles that people who want to apply for formal leadership in our church, as in uh, ordained leadership, the hurdles they have to jump through are considerable. And not many of them are to do with their abilities or their gifts. It's to do with godly character. The sort of things we're talking about here, the sort of things Paul is talking about. So look for the right qualities in our church leaders, not just in your, in your uh, ordained leaders, but in volunteers as well. Not just in the, uh, uh, looking for ability, but looking for godly character. And when they live up to what Paul speaks of here, thank God for them. Because that's the mature approach. Secondly, Reflect on how our attitudes to church leadership and the church itself are moulded by our understanding of Jesus, his death and resurrection. You might be making, let me say, the same mistake the Corinthians are making. You think, well, I know those basics. I don't need to go over that stuff again. I know it. Let me say, if you're having that thought that may actually mean you really do need to go back and dig a bit deeper and come to understand what those fundamental truths of the gospel, how they need to impact the way we live and the way we think and the way we treat our leaders. Because that's the mature approach. And lastly, if you've got a leadership role, Consider how you can continue to reject the world's ideas of what is clever and smart and what is the latest thing, the latest approach to doing leadership, the latest technique, and instead focus on growing your knowledge and understanding of Jesus and his gospel. And in doing that, the chances are very good you will build up his church. And that is Christian maturity.